I was supposed to have given Esty a chance to talk, but uh, apparently I'm losing it. So, first of all, I want to say a special hello to Sudi and his family from New York. Sudi Singh used to be a youth pastor here. Uh, Nate, you are surrounded by a, a horde of youth pastors that preceded you. George, George used to be a youth pastor, and Sheila used to be a youth pastor here, and Hank is, uh, used to be the youth pastor. I mean, you're surrounded by youth pastors, so watch it, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Sudi, it is so good to see you. Just one of my favorite people, and it's good to see your family here. Today is the last uh, sermon on the Gospel of John. I'm skipping the passion and the trial and the crucifixion. And, and so I'm coming to the last scene in the Gospel of John. It's John 21, verses 15 through 23. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger and you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. After the resurrection, Jesus appears again to his disciples after a night of fruitless fishing on their part. When they came near to the shore, Jesus is waiting there for them but they do not recognize him. He asks them if they caught anything. No, they say. Then he said, throw out your nets to the right side of the boat. See what happens there. And they did. And they were unable to bring in all the fish they caught inside the boat. At that point, John recognizes just who they're dealing with. John says to Peter, it is the Lord. And Peter, being Peter, jumps in the water and swims approximately 100 yards to shore. Then they all landed, and there on that shore, Jesus served them breakfast. And when they had finished eating, Jesus begins to attend to some unfinished business he had with Peter. In front of all the other disciples, Jesus asked, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
Now, there's been some disagreement about what, who is these. It may have been, do you love me more than your boats and your fishing equipment and your career? And do you love me more than that? Or it could be the other disciples. I think it was the other disciples. Peter answers, you know that I love you. And then Jesus responds, then feed my lambs. Then Jesus asks exactly the same question again. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus again responds, take care of my sheep. And then for a third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter's feelings are starting to be hurt here. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Then again, feed my sheep. As you remember, Peter denied Jesus three times during Jesus' trial. Three times Peter was afraid to admit he knew Jesus uh, to a teenage girl. And so what we are looking at right now is Jesus reinstating, by asking these three questions, reinstating Peter to the head of the disciples. Jesus says in front of the disciples more than once, but three times, in order to repudiate or balance, compensate for the three times Peter denied him. I think we know why Jesus asked these three questions. This was Peter's new start. This was his second chance, or maybe his third or his 50th for all we know. But once again, Jesus reaches out to Peter to bring him back into the fold and to reinstate him for the destiny he has for him. He is allowing Peter to express the deepest motives of his heart. Jesus knew even when Peter was denying him three times that Peter loved him. Even when Peter ran from the crucifixion, Jesus knew deep down in there Peter loved him. And at this moment, Jesus is calling Peter to live according to the love in his heart, not the fear he had that night. At this moment, Jesus is inviting Peter back into the adventure of a lifetime. He is giving him another chance to face his failures and overcome them. Why did Jesus do this? Because now Peter was broken. The old bravado is destroyed. Peter's pride is shattered. The one who bragged he would die for Jesus joyfully now really fully realizes how much he needs Jesus. Peter's illusions of self-sufficiency are gone. He comes to Jesus now a different man. He realizes he needs grace. He needs another chance. Dan Allender tells in his book about how he, he went fishing in Montana with his, with his 10-year-old son. And he said they were out fishing on the river in Montana, and he caught a fish. And he said, up to this point in my life, all the fish I'd caught were trout. But as I pulled this fish up, it was no trout. It was a big, ugly, gray fish, and its huge mouth was open really wide. And he said, I got scared when I got a look at it. He says, besides that, I don't like to touch fish. But I had to get this fish off the hook. He said, so right there in the boat on the river, I had a meltdown. I wanted that fish out of the boat so bad, I began just swinging it around like this. So eventually, I ripped off its lips and sent it hurtling back into the water. He says, as, I, as we got to shore, a figure was sitting on a chair about 50 feet away near the end of the dock. And as I walked by this man, he reached up, Allender says, grabbed my arm and pulled me down close to his face. Son, he said, I've been fishing for over 50 years. 
I want you to know I have never seen the likes of this. I just wanted to thank you for the show. <laughs> for the rest of the trip, Dan Allender says, I avoided this man. Throughout the week, I took my son fishing for a couple of hours right after lunch. And for three straight days, we caught nothing. On the third day, he said, the man I had been avoiding approached me and said, I see you've been taking your son out to catch fish. Yes, sir, I have. And I noticed you haven't caught anything. Yes, sir. Do you know that fish don't bite between 1 and 3.30 in the afternoon around here? No, sir, I didn't know that. Do you want your boy to catch a fish? Absolutely, yes. Then what I want you to do is to be out here at 5.30 tomorrow morning. The next morning, Dan Allender said, Andrew and I went out at 5.30, but by 7.45 we hadn't caught a thing. I'd already told my wife that we'd be back by 8. And so I said to Andrew, we got to go in. He said, inside I was ticked at God that he could divide the Red Sea, but he couldn't provide my son with one lousy fish. Andrew looked at his father plaintively and very quietly said, please, Dad, just one more time. Inside, Dan Allender said, I was raging, but I heard the Spirit of God say to me, let him try one more time. And so he looked at Andrew and said, you can cast five more times. The first cast went out, then the second, and the third. With each cast, I prayed, oh, Lord, please let him catch a fish. But by the fourth cast, he said, I had lost all hope and was desponding. I began to pull out the oars as Andrew threw his line out for the fifth time. All of a sudden, Andrew was yelling, Dad, stop. I turned around and saw that his pole was bent over. For the next five or six minutes, he fought to bring in a fish, a big fish. And when we finally got the fish into the boat, it turned out to be a big northern pike, not some big, gray, ugly thing. It was a phenomenal moment, probably one of the most important moments in my life as a father. As we neared the shore, Andrew said, Dad, we have a God, don't we? Yeah, yeah, we do, Dan said. Apparently, God loves fishing more than golf. I, that's parenthetical. <laughs> the Lord has never helped me on a golf course. Anyway... After another moment, <laughs> it's true, <laughs> not that I'm bitter or anything, anyway, and after another moment, Andrew said, Dad, I know God's name. What do you mean, Andrew? God's name is the God of the fifth cast. We serve the God of the fifth cast. God gives us a chance and then another chance, and then another chance, and then another chance. Jesus that day, so long ago, refused to let Peter's failure paralyze Peter the rest of his life. Jesus overcame Peter's shame by addressing it directly. And in doing so, he showed Peter an acceptance larger than his sins, a love greater than his failures, grace greater than his shame. Have you ever run into that? Jesus would not let Peter run from his shame or deny it or dilute it. He helped Peter face the worst moment in his life and called him back to the purpose for which Jesus had called him in the beginning. Peter, you will be a rock. Your destiny is to lead the church. I believe in you. I believe my love and grace working for you will continue. I am not going to let your failure stop what I have in mind for you. Jesus that day so long ago... Uh, touched Peter in a way that altered his destiny. 
And by the way, he did this right in front of the other disciples who would have been the first to say, we, why should we follow this loser? He got back down by a scrub woman after Jesus was gone. Jesus was taking care of business that day with Peter and the disciples. By the way, it's amazing how God can use our weaknesses and failures, isn't it? It's amazing how many alcoholics can be mentors to other alcoholics. They know their brothers and sisters struggle from the inside out. Who better to help? It's amazing how many people who have lost someone dear to them can become gifts to other people who are going through loss. They understand like no one else does. It's amazing how God uses our brokenness to help a broken world. So often our failures or loss often qualify us to minister to those going through the very same thing after Jesus heals us and restores us. Feed my sheep. A humble Peter was now ready to do just that. Humbled, Peter was now ready to lead a nation of servants. To model servant leadership to those called to give their lives to Christ and to the world. Now, it, you know, we all believe in servanthood. We all believe, you know, that, you know, Jesus was the suffering servant. But folks, it's a whole lot easier to believe it than to do it, isn't it? I know of a woman who, when she was facing an important surgery, asked her husband to look after the children over the weekend while she was in the hospital. He said no, because he was going to a promise keeper's rally for men that would teach them how to live as Christian husbands and fathers. He refused to serve his wife on the grounds that he had to attend a conference where he would be taught how to serve his wife. By the way, marriage and church is to be characterized by mutual servanthood and submission. Prefer one another. Love one another. Forgive each other. Submit to one another. That ain't easy. But it is what we are called to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Jesus tells Peter where his servanthood will lead him. Jesus tells Peter that following me will lead you to your own death. In essence, Jesus tells Peter, you will die. But you won't die the way you think you should. You won't die with a sword in your hand cutting off a Roman soldier's ear like you did in Gethsemane. You will die helpless and led to your own cross. No glorified heroic death. You're going to die like me. You will die in a pagan place, a place you would not go if it was up to your own personal preferences. You will die in hated Rome, penetrating the capital of a vast empire with the gospel. By the way, Paul and Peter, what was the prize for the early Christian church? It was the capital of the empire. And both Paul and Peter gave their lives, not in Jerusalem, but in Rome. Peter died on a cross, and because he did not consider himself worthy of dying like Jesus, he requested, he actually requested that he be crucified upside down, and the Romans accommodated his request. After telling Peter he would die, Jesus then tells Peter something he told Peter the first day he met him. Remember the first words of Jesus to Peter? Follow me. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And here in this last conversation, what does he say towards the end of the last conversation? Follow me. That is the beginning and the ending of Christianity. 
We make Christianity really complex. It's really quite simple. Follow Jesus. Do what he tells you to do. Jesus says to Peter, give your life to me. Give your life for me. Follow me through the beatings and the persecution to come. Follow me to prison. Follow me to death. No matter where it leads, Peter, follow me. Follow me because if you follow me, you'll discover it's the only life really worth living for. And even more important, you'll discover it's the only life worth dying for. We often yearn, you know, for a problem-free life. What we fail to see is that a lot of our problems, wherever they are, are invitations from the Spirit to allow Christ to work in us and through us during those problems. You know, it's, it's, you know we keep going, we keep expecting God to prevent stuff or exempt us from stuff. Often Jesus calls us right into the middle of stuff so he can change it. We ask for comfort. Christ wants transformation. We ask for control. Jesus wants dependency. We ask for ease. Christ wants to give us a challenge bigger than ourselves. He asks us to follow him in making a new world, in bringing the kingdom of God. The Spirit leads us into places that actually require that we have to depend on him, require that we need his grace, which in turn, by the way, if you really follow Jesus, I, I got some, the good news is that, is that Jesus will use you in ways that will startle you, but the bad news is you're going to get in trouble sometime, somewhere with someone. I know it may shock you, but I've actually ticked off one or two people in the last 38 years. In fact, Jesus said, expect it, because we are called to something greater than our own happiness. We are called to something greater than our own safety. We are called to something greater than our own prosperity. We are called to follow Jesus wherever it goes. And then Peter gets into his own fallen nature again. He's still Peter. <laughs> Peter sees John, and he asks Jesus, uh, uh, well, you told me about my death. What about him? To which Jesus responds, what is that to you? In other words, Peter, mind your own beeswax. This is none of your business. Besides that, you're on the same team. You and John are not in competition with each other. Remember, if he lives longer than you, that's up to me. Your job is to follow me, not compete with John. Keep your eyes on me, not him. How many people have not used their gifts because they weren't Billy Graham? I don't compare well. Or they weren't some pastor or some missionary or some high-powered leader. How many people have not used the gifts, what Jesus gave them, because they felt like they were in some competition they couldn't possibly win? We're not in competition. We're called to change the world together. All of us must use what Christ has given us. The call to servanthood is on every one of us. All of us matter. No matter what shape or size our gifts come in, we are called to share them for Christ and in the church and for the world he loves. Jennifer Dean writes this. Think of something big, a mountain, a tree. Get a mental picture of something you call big. Now consider that it is made up of tiny, tiny atoms. 
Atoms are made up of even tinier neutrons and protons. Neutrons and protons are made up of elements so small they can't even be seen with the strongest microscope. Things like quarks. There is no such thing as big. Everything we call big is just a whole lot of small. Small upon small upon small finally equals big. There is no big without lots and lots of small. Nature as God created it is in the image of the invisible kingdom of heaven. In kingdom living, small matters. Small matters. It is the key to big. As one person put it, in God's kingdom, small is the new big. In God's kingdom, the way up is down. The way to living is dying. Mother Teresa used to advise people not to try to go do great things for God, but she said, do small things with great love. Anybody, you know why? Because, look, I can't do crusades across the world like Billy Graham, but I can do small things with love. Anybody here can do that. And again, you and I, this writer continues, do not know which doors will open so that our little lives can have an impact beyond ourselves. We do not know up to the moment of our death or even beyond who might be affected by our actions. You want some examples of small being big? There was a widow 2,000 years ago at the temple who was dead broke except for a little change in her pocket, and she took the widow's mite and threw it in the treasure, and Jesus noticed her. And for the last 2,000 years, she has been the model of, gener of generosity for billions of Christians. You can't get much smaller than an old woman throwing a quarter in the, in the offering plate. Or think about some boy. Went out one day, had five loaves and two fish, minding his own business. And the next thing you know, a man named Jesus says, uh, can I borrow those? And he multiplies them and he multiplies them and he multiplies them. And he feeds 5,000 men plus the women. There were probably 20,000 people there that day. Small in the hands of Jesus becomes big. Or Jesus himself even said, that if you give a cup of water in my name, the world will change some. And that cup of water will echo through eternity. Just a couple of weeks ago, Bart's mother, she, they had a, a really bad leak in the, uh, in, the, in the house. And they asked around and, and some guy said that he could fix the leak for $2,500. I know this will shock you, but there are some scam artists here in the heaven called Harrisburg. $2,500 for a leak. My wife called Bob Cutman, and Bob Cutman's been in construction, house construction all his life. And so he went over there, and he discovered that it wasn't a big job. And so he put, put some flashing on. It didn't take him long at all. Bob didn't think that much of it. But I have to tell you, Bart's mother thought something of it that the rain was not pouring into her house anymore by the bucket loads. She was so touched that a person, a white person, a Christian person had come and fixed her roof for nothing. She wept for joy because somebody did something small. Because you see, if it's small to you, it may not be small to the other person. It may be life-changing to the other person. I have said comments off the cuff in sermons and stuff 
I know you, you've never noticed that sometimes I say comments off the cuff in sermons. I've said comments off the cuff in sermons that stop people from killing themselves. I had no idea. But Jesus did. Small is big in the kingdom. So we're called to never despair. No matter how much our lives look or how many doors we desperately wanted to go through that seem to have closed. We are invited to live as though God is opening doors that mean our smallest act of goodness somehow through God's grace will count for all eternity. Think about that. I'm sorry, but I, I like that. I, never mind. <laughs> you can say amen. You, re you really can. Amen. No gift is significant if it is given in love for Christ's glory. Use what you've got. And quit worrying about what you don't got. Because Jesus can use anyone, anything, anytime, anywhere. That is the lesson from, to Peter 2,000 years ago. Peter was going, well, am I, what about him? Am I going, is he going to be doing what I'm going to do? And Jesus said, keep your eyes on me. Don't worry about what he's doing. You worry about following me. We are called. To help feed the sheep. The sheep are supposed to help feed the other sheep. We're called to be a part of the unending story of Jesus Christ. We're called to wage truth and grace and grace upon grace. Remember in the first chapter of this gospel, that's what, that's what uh, Jesus started with. We are all called to make a difference with the weapons Christ has given us. Let me read to you a true story by Mike Iaconelli who has gone to be with the Lord. He tells this story about Michael. Michael had physical and mental disabilities that required him to live in a 24-hour care facility. Michael could, not, could walk, but he needed assistance with almost everything else. His speech was impaired, making his words difficult to understand. His parents lived some distance away, and periodically, Michael's mother suffered from bouts of depression brought on by the guilt of not being able to care for her own son. During one depressive episode, she stayed in the bed for days, unresponsive to all efforts to engage her, even her husband's. Concerned, Michael's father asked him to come home to see if his presence could bring her out of her deep despair. When he arrived home, Michael went straight into his mother's bedroom and sat on her bed. He stayed with her for a long time, while saying nothing. When his father walked into the bedroom, Michael pointed to a large flower vase that was empty and repeated over and over again as best he could, C -c 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 Coke. It took his father a while to understand that Michael was asking him to fill the vase with Coke. And after the father filled the vase, Michael slowly and painfully walked into the kitchen, returning with a small piece of white bread. And tenderly, he took hold of his mother's hand and placed the bread in it. And then he took the bread and dipped it in the Coke in the vase and gently lifted the bread to his mother's mouth as he began stumbling through the words of a communion service. Michael was doing his own communion for his mother. His mother's eyes filled with tears as she took the bread. And within a few hours, a miracle happened. The depression was broken. Michael did what he could. And he dipped, he traveled with his mother into her depression and he ministered to her there 
and her recovery began. Michael might not have been able to do many things, but he could feel. He had a heart, no matter what his mind could do. His speech might have been impaired, but his heart worked just fine. His impromptu communion service might have seemed sacrilegious or unbalanced to some, but that's exactly what his mother needed. Michael had one gift even his father didn't have. He knew his mother's heart. Michael trusted what he could do instead of getting frustrated about what he couldn't do. And he committed a tiny act of grace. He gave her communion with white bread and Coke in a vase. And that tiny act meant everything to his broken mother. Michael could have lamented his limitations. He could have despaired about the impossibility of bringing his mother out of depression. He could could have suggested his father institutionalize her too. Instead, he did, did what Christians do when they don't know what to do. He prayed, and he went to the arsenal of weapons which separate the church from every other organization and decided on one of the most unlikely weapons there. He would wage communion a symbol of Christ's giant heart, a symbol of Christ's immeasurable love where he spilled for us our salvation and the world's. Michael realized that the foolishness of God is still more powerful than all the brilliant weapons in our culture. We are called to feed the sheep. We are called to be a part of the unending story of Jesus Christ. We are called to wage truth and grace. We are called to make a difference with the weapons Christ has given us. We have the same weapons. Jesus is still with us. His marching orders are still the same. Follow him, he says, and see where it takes you. See what happens because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Your brokenness can become your calling in his hands. You can touch people that no one else can touch, not only in terms of quantity, but in terms of they trust you and they trust no one else. Jesus did many things, John ends this gospel with. Too many things for words. All the books in the world could not tell the story of Jesus Christ. Guess what? Jesus is still writing the unending story. And we're part of it. Through us, in us. And he wants to add your chapter to the story. Every kind word, every act of mercy, every act of generosity, every time you use your gifts in the power of the Spirit, every prayer goes into the book that is being written in heaven right now. Please help them to fill the book up that is being kept on your behalf. We are called not to save the world. That's Jesus' job. We are called not to totally reverse social injustice. That is Jesus' job. What we are called to do is follow Jesus. And he may lead us to one of those places. He may lead us to take on social injustice. He may lead us to, do, to, to, to be evangelistic, but our job is to follow him. It gets very simple after that. I'd like the worship team to come back to the, to the front.
I'd like the intercessors to come to the front. We never want anyone to leave this place without the opportunity for prayer. You matter. You matter more than you dream. There is no small in the kingdom. Just a lot of people following Jesus and feeding the sheep. And through that, Jesus says, that will change the world and bring the kingdom. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Would you stand? And the altar is open.